Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Well, hello, everyone, and uh, welcome back to another episode of GodPod. And uh, we are going on to the next stage in our theological conversation, which has been going on for about, I don't know, 15 years now, is it? Something like that. But um, so it's probably we've been going round and round in circles, I imagine. But I'm sure we have. And um, those of you who've been listening for that length of time, hopefully you've been following us in our meanderings through the world of theology. But uh, as you can tell already, it's um, uh, we have the the home team here today. So myself, Graham Tomlin. We have Jane Williams, that we just heard of. We also have Michael Lloyd. You didn't hear, but you probably will. <laughs> right, so. So today we are um, we're going on to the second in a little mini series. If you listen to the last episode of God Pod, you will may remember that we started a, a series on the creeds and particularly on the Nicene Creed and um, this creed that is uh, recited in churches and many churches that uh, in the middle of services of Holy Communion, for example, uh, will say the Nicene Creed, uh, the one creed that is accepted across the entire Christian world, whether Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, uh, we all sign up to the Nicene Creed. And so uh, we had a session last time on uh, why we why we have creeds and what the significance of them was. So we discussed that for um, uh, our last God Pod. But today what we're going to do is we're going to, and our second in our series, is to focus on the first bit of the creed and what it says about God the Father. Because as you know the Nicene Creed, you'll know it has a, like many creeds, a Trinitarian structure talking about uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about those in later versions of God Pod, later editions of God Pod. But, but today, our theme is uh, God the Father. So uh, at the beginning of um, the Nicene Creed, it has these words. It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. So that's the article on the creed in the Nicene Creed. Now, as we were saying last time, uh, the Nicene Creed is um, very concise, 175 words in the original Greek, every word carefully chosen. And so uh, it'd be good to explore a little bit what strikes us about that definition of God the Father. One God the Father, the almighty maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. So, Mike, Jane, when you hear that, those familiar words, what um, comes to mind? What do you um, reflect upon as you hear those words? Um. First thing that strikes me, sorry, Mike, your mouth was just about to open for a pearl of wisdom and um, don't forget it, will you come back? To it was actually for a bite of lunch, but yeah. <laughs> I think the, the thing that really strikes me is is um, the phrase Father Almighty um, uh, and, uh, and the way in which those two words then um, uh, interact with each other. Because you could have a sense of almightiness um, that is distant um, and uh, coercive or um, imposes its will on something. But if that almightiness is always fatherly, then what we're talking about is an almightiness that's relational. So this almighty God who creates everything that is, um, is, is fundamentally fatherly. 
Um, and therefore, everything that that is, that is going to be said about the way in which God creates is in that um, in in that setting of the relationship that we're going to come on to in the second article of the creed about the sun. Um, so uh, it, it sets up um, what is going to become the sort of Christian understanding of creation. That creation is uh, is through the son, because the father is always father of the son. So I, I really am intrigued about that relationship between almightiness and fatherliness straight away in that really carefully chosen phrase. And just going a, a, a phrase further back, um, I, I want to pick up on the word one. Mm. Uh, there's, there's one God, the Father Almighty. Uh, and because, as you say, Jane, the Father, the Father of it sets the relational thing. But the fact that there's one of this God thing, um, and is and God is the maker of heaven and earth, means that everything is potentially, at any, at any rate, in relationship with everything else because it's in relationship with Him. There's this, this structure of um, of connectedness, of relatedness, and of relationship that's actually built into the way things are because it's built by the God who is that relational being. Um, and I think that's hugely important for science. You know, you expect you expect things to be connected to one another. But all all intellectual pursuit, you you expect that there's a, an answer to the question why, because of the utter connectedness of everything. Uh, and and actually, you have to keep asking, well, if that's so, then why is this so, and how does that how is that connected to that? That's that's how all science is done. It's it's actually how all. Um, creative work is, is done poets find connections between different things because they're there to be made because everything is related because everything is related to the, the one god from whom it comes um i think that relational thing jane is 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 obviously there in, in the father but therefore there potentially is any right in, in everything else that is and that, that is quite a and that statement there is one god from whom everything comes it's quite a it's quite a polemical statement it's quite a controversial statement in some ways because of course there are um philosophical understandings of the world that would say that at, 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 at root everything there is just difference that everything comes out of variety and diversity and if you like paganism was kind of like that it was basically saying that that, that at root even though you got in a platonic philosophy that sometimes underpinned paganism that had a view of the kind of oneness of the divine principle. Um, paganism as it's as, as its heart, the worship of many gods, it kind of implies that, 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 that it's at the very heart of reality, what you find is difference. Um, what you find is just diversity and therefore potentially conflict. Um, and I suppose this, this, this statement, you know, we believe in one God, the very first thing that the, the, the creed says, says, as you say, Michael, yes, there is diversity within the world, and, but that diversity is good because it's all rooted in the oneness of God, the one God who uh, created all things from whom everything come. And so that gives you a vision that, that, that ultimate reality is harmonious because it's all found in this one God. And therefore, diverse, therefore divergence and conflict is not the last word. It's not the inevitable um, thing that 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 emerges from a world where you, if you believe that ultimate reality is just difference, then there's no real answer to the to the to the the um, 
just the ongoing conflicts of the world, they're just endemic. They'll just always be there. And uh, the oneness of God gives us hope that as the world came from a one God, so it will return for the one God, which isn't a, a re recipe for homogeneity, but it's a recipe for harmony, finding unity in that one God from whom all things come. And we're already set up to know it's not hom homogeneity um, because, uh, because God is fatherly. So we're already told that in this one God who is creator, it, it, there is going to be um, something that justifies calling God father. There's going to be son. There's going to be um, uh, God another time. Um, but but also that oneness um, then goes on to what the, the next phrase in the creed, which is that God makes everything that is seen and unseen. So there's nothing outside this one God. There's nothing that this one God is working with. Everything comes into being um, from this one God. Um, uh, and uh, that includes uh, the, the, the kind of things that we, that again, um, pre-Christian societies might have thought of as in themselves divine or semi-divine. Um, beings like angels, um, powers, um, stars, moons. Uh, the, again, the creed is saying uh, God, the one, makes absolutely everything that there is. And therefore you can't wander off his patch Paganism was always uh, fearful that you know you, you, if you moved to a different place, then you'd move off that god's territory, and you never knew how to appease the new one or what they liked and how to you know. Uh, whereas, actually, the whole cosmos is the patch uh, of the one god because it all came from him, and and it is that fatherliness that therefore is universally accessible. Uh, everywhere you go, that's the ultimate reality uh, upon which you can depend. And, and the fatherliness, sorry, Graham, the fatherliness also gives us some reason why such a God might create. Um, there is something um, outgoing about God's very being, that God is the one who gives God's self in love to uh, the sun, um, and uh, and therefore again that that question of, of why something exists rather than nothing begins to make sense when we call God Father. There is something out. There is something outpouring about God's love in God's self, and, and it suggests that what that reason is 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 a, a desire to share love, to, mm. to, to share the being and fullness and. and mm overflowingness of God um, with others so that they are brought, brought into that same love in some way. And that, that does change the way you look at the world, doesn't it? Because you know, if, if the world came from a father, as opposed to some abstract divine principle or some maybe angry um, divinity up in the skies uh, or some distant... Um, a divine figure, but know that the world came from a father. That 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 makes you look at the world differently. Um, this is a world that is shot through with fatherly love and care. Now, of course, that then brings up the question of the existence of evil and might want to your territory here. And we've been over that in many kind of ways. But right, right at the beginning of the creed, we're given a transformed view of the world that it's not just nature, it's creation. 
it's not just something to be analyzed um, kind of in a distant way, but it, 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 it comes from an intelligence which is not just an intelligence, but is a fatherly intelligence. And therefore, we should expect to find traces of that fatherly intelligence throughout this world that we've been uh, exploring. Um, and that relationship between the father and the son, if, you know, which is, if you like, I guess we're getting onto the territory, what, what's sometimes called Logos Christology here, you know, John's, John Gosp, John's Gospels, picking up of this, this idea that, you know, God's word, God's Logos runs through the whole of creation. And this is sort of God's rationality that there, but it's that Logos that became incarnate in Jesus Christ. Uh, and so there's a connection there between Christology and creation. Uh, they belong together. You know, creation is, if you like, shot through with divine wisdom. Um, it's one of the things that uh, when you read someone like, you know, St. Basil, um, uh, St. Basil the Great wrote this, this um, remarkable series of sermons called the Hexameron, um, which comes from the six days of creation, uh, where, where he kind of explores the world as a, um, you know, according to the science, he's like a sort of, you know, fourth century David Attenborough, you know, who's fascinated in the details of, of, of creation, but not, not on a sort of just to kind of analyze the, the, the science for its own sake, but for what it tells you about, about God um, and what it tells you about the moral life. Uh, and so, you know, the sea is a picture of the limitless love of God. It's also uh, something that enables goods to be transferred from one part of the world, which may be richer to, 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 an, to an area that's poorer. Um, so the sea is a kind of means by which God enables riches to be shared across the world. And so he looks at all these different elements of creation and sees divine wisdom in them. And um, that is a whole new way of looking at the world. It's not just a kind of, you know, reductionistic scientific view of the world. And, uh, um, but it's something much richer that has kind of moral meaning at the same time. Moral meaning uh, because intentionality. And, and that's really interesting. If you looked at the world without that, uh, perspective without a, a, a fatherly creator, just as a kind of natural occurrence. Um, there's no reason to say that the sea should be used for taking resources from the rich to the poor. And you know, there's no, there's no telos, there's no point, there's no aim, there's no right way of using it. People are free to make up whatever they want, use it however they want, um, and. But if there is a, a fatherly purpose, a personal uh, intelligence behind it, then there are right ways of using it and wrong ways of using it. And given that we're speaking at the same time as the COP26 uh, conference, that's rather an important fundamental point, really, about how you see the world. Yeah, picking up that theme, I, I do think that um, there's something in this view of creation, nature as, as creation, that actually gives you a a solid reason for why creation ought to be preserved. Because it seems to me a lot of the other views as to why creation ought to be preserved are a little bit flimsy. You know, you, th you think of, you know, the Babylonian myths of creation that said that, you know, the creation is a, an accidental byproduct of the, the violence of the gods. It was when, you know, one god cut another god in half and sort of, you know, made the earth out of the remains of it. And therefore sort of violence is right at the heart of the, of the creation. That's not a good, good reason for looking after the world. You know, when you look at you know, the Greek epics of Homer and uh, and others, this idea that the world is degenerating from the original age of gold and it's getting worse and there's nothing we, you can do about it. Um, so actually trying to address climate change is, is, is no point. You know, Plato sees the, 
the physical world as an imperfect copy of what really matters, which are the abstract ideas or forms, and therefore the world is not as important as these platonic forms. You know, the Gnostics thought that salvation was about escaping this flawed and ugly world, so the world of spirit. None of them give you a a very good reason for um, for caring for the the world, and even even you could say contemporary scientific atheism simply says the world came about by accident. Um, does that give you a good reason for preserving the world? Yeah. And even even the the idea that you know that we need to preserve the world because it's our only home, we need to preserve it for our children. Um, that is a rather anthropomorphic view of the world that it's only good for us. We preserve it because it's our it's our home. Whereas I think the Christian doctrine of creation says we preserve the world simply because it's good, um, because God created it. And, that, and it should be that the Christian or the, the Christian view and the Jewish view that we find in the Old Testament, the Hebrew view as well, is, is the only one that actually says that creation is unmitigatedly good. And that's why it needs preserving. It's not flawed. Um, it's become flawed because of the entry of sin into the world, but it wasn't in its beginning. It's not degenerating from some age of gold, but it is purely good. And that gives you a really solid reason for caring for creation. We're talking about fatherliness as though that's bound to be a good thing. Um, but actually, of course, um, there are lots of ways in which fatherliness equals patriarchy, equals a particular kind of um, uh, understanding of power and dominance and so on. Is there? Um, uh, can we unpack why fatherliness doesn't have to carry those kind of connotations at the beginning of the creed? I mean, I think... <laughs> any word needs to be defined by its context and and therefore defined in this particular case by how God reveals himself to be in his relationship with with jesus and and that is something that I think can be therapeutic as well as problematic um it is problematic i'm I'm not belittling the, the difficulties of that and for some people may need to stop using the word but I but I wouldn't also want to let go of the fact that it can be healing that, that the sort of father that people may have experienced is not the only kind and, and this is holding out a very very different kind of fatherliness of parenthood uh, of uh, protection and inclusion and love um, yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, when we use um, kind of anthropomorphic terms like father or shepherd or judge to, to speak of God, um, we can think that means that God is, God is like our shepherds or our fathers or our, um, or our judges. Um, but actually what I think the scriptures mean is actually the other way around. Uh, it's precisely that God is not like human shepherds, judges and, and, and fathers, but actually it's from God's fatherhood or God's shepherdhood, if you can call it that, or God's judgment, that we, we learn what real fatherhood and shepherding and care and judgment uh, is about. Um, I, think it was, I think it was Nicholas Lash, who was a Catholic theologian, said, said something like this, that, you know, that, that unlike other judges, God judges justly. And unlike other shepherds, God brings back the strays and, Strengthens the weak. Other, like unlike other fathers, God is like the father in the prodigal son um, story. 
So in other words, like, you know, our, it's not that God is like our fathers and so on. It's just that our, our fatherhood and our parenthood, if you can put it that way, is to be kind of imaged in the light of the parenthood that we see within uh, within God himself. And so it's that transition of thought seems to me needs to happen in order to understand this language properly. It's interesting that Jesus says we actually shouldn't call anybody else father. That's one mm. of those um, uh, pieces of advice from Jesus that we have totally ignored, isn't it? But again, it does suggest that um, uh, uh, Jesus is wanting us to rethink what we might mean by fatherhood. Yeah. I suppose also in this particular context, when we're talking about creation, um, uh, the, the creed is is rejecting um, a, a more um, sort of sexualized understanding of how creation comes into being. So there is the father, but there isn't a mother in creation. Um, that this is an entirely different process that brings the world into being from the processes that uh, of reproduction um, uh, and uh, and recreation within the world. This is a um, and I think that's again part of what's going on in the use of the word father. It's rejecting the sort of um, birth myths of some of the uh, of the ancient Near East about how things actually come into being. Um, and so, funnily enough, I think it's meant to do the opposite of concentrate on the masculinity of God. I think it's meant to concentrate on the uh, on the uh, the completely different way in which God brings things into being from the way in which that happens within creation. I think one of the other things that um, where I think places where I think this is really helpful in the modern world is it, I think the oneness of God undergirds the possibility and the and the need uh, for truth. Um, if we if I mean relativism, which has been pervasive in our culture for um, some decades now, is basically a form of polytheism. It's basically a way of saying each individual is their own source of truth and value. And A, that is very difficult, you know, we therefore don't get very much value from ourselves because we don't value ourselves very much. Uh, and so it's psychologically and emotionally stultifying. But it also says, well, you know, my truth, your truth is not my truth. Um, and, and there comes the whole kind of post-truth problem whereby uh, people can say, well, there's no, there's no attempt or, or people don't feel the need to subject what they think and what other people think to critical uh, mm. testing. And, and people kind of ignore the whole rational process because my truth, well, it's my truth and you can't question it. Whereas yeah, in fact... The fragmentation of our discourse and our ability to cancel each other quite easily without any kind of conversation or, or, or ongoing discourse at all. Exactly. Um, whereas if there is one God, uh, then there is one source of truth, and that makes one be critical of everything else, um, including one's own, one's own position, um, in a way that I think would, be, would bring a degree of sanity to our modern discourse. And a degree of liberation as well. I mean, one of the um, uh, hugely liberating things about knowing there is only one God is it means there aren't others. Um, so there is only this one God uh, whose who's, um, character and judgment uh, carries 
reality. Um, uh, and uh, nobody else has that kind of power over us. We don't have to worry about uh, the other kinds of um, things that try to claim to be divinities in our life. This is um, this is the, the only source. Um, and that is a hugely liberating reality, although, as you say, it requires um, self-criticism and, and attention to the truth of what God is then like. What is this God? Who is this God? Uh, I want to pick up something that, again, you were saying a little bit earlier on, Jane, about um, uh, about angels and beings like that. And just pick on the, on the phrase that we get in the end of that um, little statement about God. That he's, he's the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And um, I'm quite intrigued by that, that he's the maker of both the things we can see and analyze and discover, but also the things unseen. And I think you made the point that God is the creation of creator of everything. And I, I suppose what, what, what this suggests, I think, is it's a much bigger view of the world than any kind of materialistic, scientific atheism can ever give you, give you. Because often that vision of the world tells you that the only things that really matter or the only things that really, really exist to have any sub substance are the things that you can analyze and somehow discover in a test tube or whatever. And it's a world that has very little room for such things as, as grace or holiness or, or love or miracles or, or, as you say, angels and angelic beings and so on. So in other words, the idea that we have a world which is both a God who is creator of those things, both seen and unseen, suddenly expands the world to a much bigger thing uh, than so many of our contemporary kind of rather reductionistic views of the world give us. Uh, I remember a number of years ago encountering someone who'd just come to faith in, in, in Christ, and they were, they were asking, you know, what difference has this made? And, and, and uh, the phrase they use is it just the world seems a bigger place now. Um, it struck me that's actually right, that when you come to faith in Christ, when you see the world this way, the world is a bigger place. There's so much more to explore. Um, yes, all finding its unity in this one God, but so much bigger uh, world than, than people could ever imagine. Uh, and this is a view of the world that has space for all those wider things rather than just the things that can be scientifically, scientifically analysed. So it's a kind of very rich picture of the world we're given here. And, and Flannery O'Connor, the great writer, um, said something very similar. He said the Christian novelist lives in a bigger universe. Yeah. And you see that in uh, Narn the Narnia Chronicles or, or whatever it might be. It's a, it's a bigger world. But I think I want to just pick up on, on Jane's point about liberation and, and link it to what you're saying, Graham, about the unseen world and the unseen forces, because there's a great sense in the early Christian theologians uh, that we've been set free from a whole lot of unseen forces that previously mm. cramped and uh, distorted our lives. So um, astrology, um, magic, curses, if you read something like Athanasius, there's a huge sense of liberation from, from those things that previously afflicted them or, or oppressed them. Um, and, okay, we may not believe in those sorts of things, but I do think that the, it, there are unseen forces that we're aware of, market forces and, and um, worldview forces and that sort of thing that, that re restrict us and constrict us and from which we are in principle set free by the fact that it is all from one God, the Father Almighty. And as you were saying earlier, Mike, it also encourages us 
to explore the world because the world is not divine. Um, I think it was, is it Robert Jensen who says something like, um, if uh, you don't shoot a rocket at the moon if, if, you, if the moon is a goddess. But if actually the whole world is created, is not itself divine, then we are free to explore it. We are free to explore it and expect that it will have some kind of meaning and sense because of where it comes from. Um, but not that it has um, um, divine power that we should be afraid of. Um, we're, we're not in danger of uh, annoying uh, some god that we've never heard of uh, if we explore planets and so on, uh, because there is the only only the one god, and it's God's world. It is full of uh, rationality and purpose and beauty. And, and not only are we not annoying God by exploring his world, it would be a very odd thing to believe in the creator and not be interested in and curious about the creation. Mm. What kind of insult to the creator is that? You know, you've made this, but I'm not terribly interested. I'm just going to get on with the spiritual stuff. But also it gives a reason for our own creativity as well. Yes. That, um, that actually if, if the God from whom this world came is this great divine artist who has created this, this incredible work of art that is the world. And it's very interesting, you know, you can see, you know, he's got a scientist or an artist, or maybe he's a bit of both, you know, he's created this world, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a, a world of, of beauty and of proportion and harmony. Uh, and therefore, that it's a, again, it's a proper approach, proper response to the creator of this world, that we take the things of this world and we arrange them into artifacts of beauty, whether it's painting, whether it's sculpture, whether it's words in poetry or, or, or language or story. Uh, therefore, this view of creation gives a validity to the scientific pursuit and understanding the world, but it also gives validity to the artistic, creative response to God in, in in response to his creativity. We couldn't be creative if we weren't given the things to work with in the first place. Uh, you know, stone and minerals and words and, and so on. And so this, in you know, implicit within this view of creation is something that which validates and endorses and gives a good reason for both science and the arts and so much of our human endeavour. But it also requires um, a certain level of humility from us, doesn't it? Because we oh, too darn. are creatures. I'm so sorry. But we too are creatures. So we don't um, stand in a different relationship. Um, of the, the, I mean, we, we too are part of what God has made um and it's uh, and um and we are part of this interconnecting whole uh, that makes sense of us as we make sense of it and um uh, all of it dependent upon god so yes we are called to um enjoy and explore and create within those parameters but remembering that we are part of what was created seen and unseen as well and therefore in some ways that gives a Validity to the whole enterprise of psychology and sociology, trying to understand ourselves, trying to understand who we are, how we work as people, how our societies work. Um, not seeing those as ultimate discourses that describe everything, but seeing that within the broad structure of, of, of a world that God, has, that God has created and given to us to enjoy and to explore and to, uh, to understand. Who would have um, thought there was so much in one phrase? Well, exactly. That's right. <laughs> And given how long the second phrase is, the next session is going to be... <laughs> the exact thought of, Lots of people will probably die during the making of it. The exact thought <laughs> struck me, Mike. I was looking, looking at the Korean thing. It was only four lines so far. There was about 25 lines in the next article. So 
hopefully the next gold pod is not going to be quite so long well it'll be as long as this one but it won't be you know, anyway we'll just see how we do do with that one but um anyway it's been fascinating just to kind of explore that little phrase of the um the nicene creed of um god the father almighty maker of heaven and earth all of all that is seen and unseen so um thank you mike thank you jane thank you. Again. and uh thank you for all of you who are listening to god pod today hope you've enjoyed that discussion and hopefully it stimulates your own thinking and uh, reading and pondering and worship uh, as well so we will be back again with uh, another god pod before too long um and uh, we'll be picking up that sort of on the third of this little mini series focusing upon what the creed says about um, about jesus the only son of god eternally begotten of the father and so on so we'll be back with uh, the uh, next episode in this um, little mini-series. But until then, uh, we uh, look forward to seeing you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. That was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.